This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And some Christian theologians have said God can't contradict God's own nature. And what I'm making the claim here is that God's nature is love, and this love is is self-giving and others empowering. And because it's God's very nature to act this way, and God can't deny himself, God can't contradict God's own nature, God simply can't control anyone or anything. No one will be talking in time. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and we have a returning guest this week. Uh, we welcome back Dr. Thomas J. Ord. And uh, he was on probably about a year or two ago. Uh, now, looking back, I'll have to put the, uh, the, the prior. Uh, episode in the show notes, but he came on in promotion of a book that he had that came out called God Can't. And uh, it was a a bit of a conversation starter, uh, shall we say, on the podcast. So we had a lot of good conversations that came out of it. Uh, But what the book attempts to do is kind of answer the age-old question, you know, if God is all good and God created everything, you know, God created the universe and everything in it, then where did evil come from and why does bad stuff happen? And uh, I think that's a really relatable uh, question that that we find ourselves asking more and more uh, these days uh, with the pandemic going on and with all uh, the things that we see happening around the world. So I uh, thought it was a, a, a pretty pretty good time to have him back on to talk about his follow-up book that he just wrote uh, based on God Can't. And it's uh, based on uh, prevalent questions that he got uh, in regards to uh, the book God Can't. So um, it's designed, it's broken out into eight chapters, and um, he basically lays out uh, seven questions that that he got uh, based off the first book uh, through lectures that he had done uh, from students uh, all over the place, and then one that that he put in there that he felt was, uh, was important to talk about, and I would agree. Uh, so um, eight chapters, uh, really interesting. And for those of you who may have read it the first time around or listened to the episode and still had questions, maybe didn't quite agree with uh, part of the premise, uh, that's okay. Uh, sometimes we like to have guests on that just uh, make us think and um, generate conversation and, uh, and that sort of thing. So I think there's some, some really good uh, ideas here and um, uh, it merits merits conversation. So, uh, so if you had questions based on the first round, uh, hopefully m- maybe he's answered some of those in this in this new book, and and hopefully we address those on the podcast. I will say, and I do mention this in the interview, that uh, certainly we can't dive too deeply into each chapter uh, and each question. Uh, so, you know, if if you still find yourself asking questions, I highly recommend. Uh, going and getting uh, the first book and the follow-up book. He goes way more in-depth into each of those topics uh, than we could possibly do justice on the podcast, but at least wanted to give a cursory overview of each chapter, the topic, uh, and ask some questions based on that to give you at least a taste of, of what 
what the question was and, and how he's attempting to, to respond to it. So um, really interesting conversation, uh, really fascinating uh, topic. So uh, loved having him on. So anyway, uh, before we get to that, uh, some typical house cleaning stuff. Thank you so much for listening in the first place. Uh, if you want to keep up on uh, what we're up to, uh, com uh, is where you can go. We have all of our prior episodes uh, posted there. Although recently our host site, for some odd reason, uh, is not allowing us to embed the episode uh, into the website anymore. So we're, we're trying to look for workarounds on that. So working with our, our web guy on that to try to figure out how to, how to get around that. So, But uh, certainly all of our back catalog is, is readily available on any of the major uh, podcast platforms. So, But the website uh, definitely has all of our our episodes has our web store so if you want to snag a cool t-shirt uh pint glass coffee mug you can do all that through there our blog uh is there as well and if you want to support us further through patreon uh link to our patreon page is there as well and uh, of course all of our social media so if you want to chat with us on social media uh, try to get on there as often as possible uh you can link to us through there so uh, so thanks again to everybody who supported us in any way, shape, or form. Love and appreciate uh, the questions and the emails that that you send us, um, and we try to stay on top of that as best as possible as well. Um, but this week, uh, definitely want to support our, our musicians. So again, if you're new to the podcast, uh, the music that we use, uh, the artists uh, are, are kind enough to let us use their music. And, um, and so we try to promote them as best we can. And so, uh, follow them on social media, support them, uh, you know, support them, you know, by, by purchasing their music, going and listening to their music, uh, streaming their music, uh, do what you can because they, they literally are doing this out of the, uh, the kindness of their hearts. So, uh, and if you want to follow and, and see what other artists we've used in the past, uh, we do have a Spotify playlist, uh, the, uh, just, Type in the, the Deconstructionist into Spotify, and you will see our playlist there that you can follow. And so every episode that we release, whatever the artist is on that particular episode, I will um, I update it, uh, update the playlist accordingly. So, uh, so this week, and uh, please, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. I'm so sorry if I'm not. George Ogilvie. Uh, great artist. Uh, I go down the rabbit hole a lot, and, and I just uh, I love music. It's one of my other uh, passions, and so uh, just really love his music and was super excited to be able to feature it uh, on an episode. So if you like his tunes, like I said, go out, follow him on social media, go support him as an artist, uh, especially now where artists can't tour. A uh, little, little bit of information about the, the music world. Uh, most artists, unfortunately, don't have lucrative record contracts where um, they don't make a whole lot through music sales. Uh, and, and especially if, even through streaming, like they just get a fraction oftentimes of uh, the the overall profits. And so a lot of them depend on touring and merch to to make a lot of their their income. And so, of course, with the pandemic happening right now, many of them can't tour. And so it's vitally important that we find other ways to to support them, because uh, a lot of them, that is their full time job or. Uh, at least, you know, they're attempting to make a career off it. So, um, so go out and support those artists. Uh, can't stress that enough. So, uh, I think that's it. So, um, got some fun ones coming up. We've done some pretty, pretty heavy ones recently with, uh, 
uh, with everything that's going around in the world. Uh, but we do have a couple fun ones that I recorded a, a ways back that I'm excited to get out uh, to you guys to, to listen to. So, so that will be on the way. And uh, at least for now, uh, I've been your host and uh, I'm going to get out of the way now so you guys can listen to this episode. So without further ado, Thomas freaking Borg. Slow down my under surveillance, the path of the poet's idea. Forever amazed by the way that you spin the wheel. It goes over your head, dear, over your head, over. All right, welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. This week, we are welcoming back a return guest. Uh, and and I cannot wait. This is uh, something that I, I was fascinated with the first time around. Uh, so welcome back to the podcast, uh, Dr. Ord. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So so the first time around, we talked about your your last book, God Can't. And obviously, it's it's one of those things where uh, it, it elicits a ton of conversation. And we had a lot of really uh, interesting conversations, fun conversations as a result of the last podcast, because people are always asking that question, uh, why does bad stuff happen? You know, God created the world, God is all good, then where does evil come from? And and so uh, your book uh, attempted to address that question, and so now you have a new book coming out, uh, a follow-up to that book. And so what, uh, I guess before we get into it, uh, for those who, this is their first time around, uh, what is the general kind of uh, you know thesis behind the, the first book, God Can? Well, the first book offers five ideas that I claim, when taken together, these five ideas actually solve the problem of evil or give an actual solution to the question of why a powerful and loving God doesn't stop or prevent uh, pointless pain, genuine evil, unnecessary suffering. And... um, the probably the central point to that particular the, the central point of the five points we might say is that God's power is framed, shaped, or constrained by God's love, and so I claim that God loves everyone and everything, and therefore God simply can't control anyone or anything. God's love is inherently uncontrolling we might say yeah and one of the things one of the points you make in the in the last book that i i think is very interesting is is this idea this distinction between god can't versus god won't and and so i uh, i i would love for you to talk about that because that's a very important distinction i think ba- you know uh ba- based on the 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 last book that you make a a a point to to call uh call that out in the book yeah, I'm, I'm happy you, you point you note that because that is an important issue. A, a lot of people are uncomfortable believing that God controls everything. You know, that God is the jo- God of John Calvin, who's totally controlling everything from the most complex to the least complex. And a lot of people like the idea that at least complex creatures like you and me have something like free will or agency. Um, and then they believe, at least most people, that God allows or permits things to occur in the world that God doesn't really want. And the common phrase will be, well, God uh, doesn't want 
what happened to you to it have occurred if some genuine evil, let's take torture. God didn't uh, want that torture, but God won't always stop it. And the problem with God won't stop it is that it says to every you know victim of torture, abuse, rape, whatever, that God could have prevented it if God had wanted to, but God, for some mysterious reason, a part of some mysterious plan or whatever, God chose not to prevent what God could have stopped. And what my book suggests is that we should just take out that word won't, take out the words allowed or permitted, and say that God simply can't prevent genuine evil. It isn't that God is choosing not to step in to intervene and stop what God could stop. No, God just inherently can't prevent evil single-handedly. And you point out that there are there is a precedent for this uh, found within Scripture of other examples that, that are called out within the Bible of things that God cannot do. Yeah, this is one of the most surprising things for many readers of the book. Uh, you know, we've been led to, to believe that God can do just anything God wants to do. Um, and yet there are quite a few biblical passages that say God can't do things. For instance, uh, God can't grow tired. God can't tell a lie. God can't be tempted. But the one that I often orient the discussion around is this really interesting passage. The Apostle Paul in Second uh, Timothy says, when we are faithless, God cannot deny himself. And I like to point out that most theologians in Christian history have said God can't do what is illogical. And some Christian theologians have said God can't contradict God's own nature. And what I'm making the claim here is that God's nature is love. And this love is is self-giving and others empowering. And because it's God's very nature to act this way and God can't deny himself. God can't contradict God's own nature. God simply can't control anyone or anything. Yeah, I thought that to me personally was the most interesting uh, part of of the last book. Um, Just this idea that it would be uh, a violation of God's own gift of free will to, to, to humankind. Right. And not just free will to humans, but agency to worms and ants and even the self-organization at the smallest levels of existence. Um, Yeah, there's quite a few uh, philosophers and theologians who will venture so far as to say God can't take away free will once God has given it. Um, But I'm taking that idea and extending it throughout all creation, down to the quarks. I'm not saying quarks have free will, but I think quarks have some kind of responsiveness, some kind of spontaneity, and God can't even control at that level. Yeah. So, so uh, what what brought about? So, obviously, you know, as I as I mentioned previously, I know on our end it, it created a lot of uh, conversation. That the first the first book uh, on this subject. Um, so, what prompted you to write the the new book? Obviously, you were fielding uh, a good deal of questions based on the first book as well. Yeah, you know, there are a lot of folks, especially folks who were, you know, victims of horrific evils, who were sending me letters and saying, you know, thank you so much for this book. Um, I now don't think that God 
allowed what happened to me or that God abandoned me or that God was punishing me by allowing me to be raped or whatever. Um, but then they weren't quite sure how to make sense of lots of other important ideas in their way of thinking about God. And many of them were Christians, so many of them were trying to figure out, okay, what does this now mean for miracles? How should I think about them? Or prayer? Should I pray anymore? Or uh, the end of, of times, uh, eschatology? All these kinds of questions began to emerge, and, and I could feel this Oh, what's the right word? I could feel this longing from these people to want to hang on to this new idea of a God of uncontrolling love, but really worried that if they do, they have to get rid of all kinds of other things they really liked. And this book is in part a, uh, a an explanation that you can retain lots of the other things that you want to retain. It's just you have to rethink God's way of acting in relation to miracles, prayer, eschatology, whatever. Yeah, so so let's let's get into that. Uh so you you organize it by uh obviously each chapter is based on uh a particular question that that arose as a result of God can't and so obviously there there are many more questions that that you you even mentioned that you could have included in here but you would have written, you know, 500 books probably at that point. So, <laughs> so Yeah. <laughs> So, so I, I'm assuming that that these were the most prevalent uh, questions that you received, and and that's why you you chose to include them in here, or were these the most pressing? You know, what what? How, how did you uh, kind of cultivate, I guess, this list uh, in particular? Yeah, it was a kind of a combination of methods. Some of these uh, questions were asked when I give uh, lectures at universities or churches or conventions or conferences. Uh, some are asked on social media. In fact, there's a Facebook group called uh, the Uncontrolling Love of God Conversations, and I, I ask folks for, you know, questions there. And I tried to, you know, I wasn't like super uh, anal about this, but I tried to take the ones that were the most often asked. Um, probably there's only one question in this book that I think was, it was rarely asked, but I thought it was so important. I I inserted it, but I, I basically went with majority rules here and chose the eight most asked questions. Great. So, so let's let's start off with the first one because I think this is a you start off with a really like solid question that I know a lot of people uh, you know wanted to ask, uh, and, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners who remember uh, the first podcast that we did with you. Uh, probably had some of these questions as well. So, so chapter one, you start out with, if God can't control, then what's what's the point of prayer? You know, because obviously asking God to heal uh, would be pointless if God can't intercede, uh, which seems to be a very relevant topic uh, considering what we're going through right now with uh, with the COVID pandemic and and that sort of thing. So, um, so talk about. Uh, how, how many of you pray, prayer in response to a loved one contracting COVID? Cause you give that example in there versus the conventional view of God. Yeah. I, one of the things I try to do in this chapter is to say that, uh, look, the, the two main alternatives, maybe even three main alternatives to my view, they've got really bad problems on their own. So, you know, if you believe God controls everything, well, then you believe that God wanted the coronavirus and there's nothing you can do to stop it um, unless God just decides for whatever reason to control it, to stop it. 
Or if you're someone who says that God has got a totally hands-off policy, not involved in the world, is, you know, watching us from a distance, and then, of course, your petitionary prayers isn't going to somehow influence God to do anything because God's, you know, eating popcorn, watching from Mars or wherever. <laughs> yeah. Um, but most people don't have those two views. Most people have a view that God sometimes intervenes to single-handedly fix some problem because we prayed. You know, maybe we're praying for uh, an illness, or maybe we're praying for a good job, or maybe we're praying to get out of some relationship. And um, the idea is that God could, whenever God wants to, step in and single-handedly make something happen, bring about some result. The problem with believing that God has that kind of power is that it easily implies that the God who could single-handedly fix things doesn't need any of our help, and if God is sort of waiting around, arms crossed, saying, you know, if John prays 37 times, I'm going to jump in, this sounds like a God who's, you know, just not a very good and loving person. Um, And so I point out that that view of God presents all kinds of problems, mysteries, and questions that often, if not always, undermines our faith in a God who's truly loving. Um, and so my proposal is to, in, you know, emphatically affirm God is truly loving, always loving, and that God always wants to do the best in response to our prayers, and that our prayers actually influence God. They influence the world, they influence God, And because of this influence, there can be new possibilities, new avenues, new ways for God to work in relationship with us and the world so that our prayers don't somehow somehow make it that God can control us. They don't guarantee the kind of results, but they they become new data. They become new relational uh, inputs that God can use in God's moment-by-moment work in the world. And I could be tame For a moment Then you walk over my grave Where we lay and dream The weather away So I, I noticed there, there's this uh, theme that, that kind of runs throughout the uh, the, the, the previous book, God Can't, and even this book as well. Uh, and it's this idea that God works in conjuncture or in partnership uh, with its creation. That's right. That's a huge one for me. It's, I think, kind of at the essence of what many people call relational theology. Um, I, I like to point out that this doesn't mean God waits around to act. I think God always acts. But the results God wants to see in the world require some kind of cooperation on our part or the conditions of creation being conducive or aligned for God's action and creaturely response or creaturely uh, um, conditions to bring about certain results. Yeah, and and I I definitely want to get back to uh, the the cooperation piece because I know that comes up in uh, later chapters as well. But before we get get to that point, um, you know, I I want to kind of sum up sum up chapter one a little bit. Um, This idea because this comes up a lot. I I recall a pastor friend of mine 
talking in a sermon about, you know, why is it that sometimes, you know, I show up at a hospital and there's a sick and dying child and we pray and, and the church prays on behalf of this child. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're in prayer for days or weeks or whatever. And sometimes the child makes a miraculous recovery and sometimes the child dies, you know, how does, how does God decide, you know, cause that's kind of the way people see it. Uh, often is is yeah in some sense god makes a decision whether or not this child lives or dies you know and and a lot of a lot of churches unfortunately in north america specifically uh there's a lot of um i don't know sh- shame or or guilt that kind of comes along with it because it's almost uh sometimes outright said you know well your faith wasn't strong enough that's why when you prayed nothing happened that kind of thing so what would your response to that be my response to that would be that most of the time, there might be a few exceptions, but most of the time, people who are not healed, who are praying and petitioning God and asking them to, you know, get over cancer or get over whatever they're working through, most of the time, people are cooperating to their very best. They're, they're saying yes to God with their conscious thoughts and their conscious intentions, but their bodies, the cells may not be cooperating with God. And we simply don't have control over all facets of our body. I think we all know that. Sometimes we influence very strongly what our bodies do. Other times we just can't control them. Um, And so I want to say to the person who's been praying, you know, with full faith, asking God to heal and they aren't healed, that God isn't just sort of picking and choosing who gets to get healed and who doesn't, as if God can single-handedly do this. Rather, those other forces and factors that are also at play, often in our own bodies, and those forces and factors are also things God can't control. God works alongside, God calls, lures, whatever is possible amongst you know smaller entities of reality, but God even loves the cells such that God can't control them. Yeah, and one one of the things that you point out too, uh, which I think is important, is that um, even in instances where uh, perhaps prayer isn't answered in the, in the way that we would like, that does not mean that God is completely disconnected from the situation. Right. Yeah, that's really important. You know, some people today will emphasize the idea that God is present and suffering with us in the midst of the difficult times, and and I also want to believe that. But I don't think that goes far enough because, um, you know, if you think God could single-handedly fix you, let's say you're suffering from leukemia. If you think God could single-handedly fix you, heal you, cure you, and God has the power to do that, but God is just present suffering with you, that, boy, that, that paints a really bad picture of God in my mind. Imagine if you had a a physician with you, and the physician knew how to heal you, but decided just to talk with you and hold your hand and suffer with you. I mean, you would say, come on, now, if you've got the capacity to heal me, let's get on with it. Um, I think we need to make sure we also believe that about God. If God could single-handedly heal everybody, then God ought to be in that business, assuming God's loving um, but I think we make a lot more sense of things to believe that God is actively working at all times and all places, but simply cannot single-handedly heal, fix, and cure. 
So, so talk about a little bit about, I think this, this, uh, um, leads into chapter two very nicely, uh, because the, the topic for chapter two is, uh, if God is uncontrolling, how do we explain miracles? And miracles is, uh, have always been a tricky thing for, for me. I, I have a naturally skeptical brain. And so, you know, you read, <laughs> you read these stories in the Bible of these, you know, almost, almost magic is happening, you know, uh, and then you look at present day and you say, like, where are those types of biblical level miracles occurring? And, and some, some people, uh, you know, the, the super devout perhaps <laughs> would point to, well, you know, we, we prayed in this, this, you know, this person made a miraculous recovery, the cancer magically went away, that sort of thing. And so it seems to me like my skeptical brain says, okay, so, so we give God all the credit when it, it works out in our favor, but then when it doesn't, you know, then it's, well, we, we start pitching these, uh, euphemisms like, oh, it's, well, God's mysterious and we just don't understand God's ways. So, uh, so first of all, you, you, you define, you have your own definition of miracle. So I think that's an important place to start. So how do you define miracles? And then, uh, talk a little bit about, uh, how, again, if God is uncontrolling, how do we then explain miracles? Yeah, so uh, very few people have tried to give a definition of a miracle, actually. <laughs> that includes lots of scholars. Uh, it's a very tricky word. And when I was doing my research on actually a previous book called The Uncontrolling Love of God, I, I did a lot of work at this and finally came to decide uh, if I was going to have a, some meaning or talk about um, miracles in a meaningful way, I needed to have a, a, a sort of a, a fast and ready and clear definition. And so I, I came to believe that miracles are best understood as involving three major elements. First of all, I think miracles are unusual. And some people like to say all of life is a miracle, but I just can't look at rape and say, whew, there's a miracle. Um, so um, it's got to be good as well. So a, a miracle is unusual and good. And then the third point is that I think Miracles are occur as God acts in relation to creation. And it's that third one that carries lots of the weight in the discussion, because here I'm going back to, as you said, chapter one, by saying that God works in tandem with creation, or God acts, and then that action calls and commands or lures, persuades, whatever language you want to use, and then require some kind of creaturely response or the conditions of creation to be conducive or appropriate for the kind of uh, miracle to happen. This helps then, I think, in making sense. Sounds like your experience is kind of like mine, that, you know, I've seen some things that I thought were miraculous, but a whole lot more often I've been praying for miracles that didn't happen. And I've had to kind of figure out some sort of explanation for them. And and the old, you know, it's all God, part of God's mysterious plan grew pretty uh, stale in the conversation. So what I like to say then is that God always wants to work in miraculous ways that are unusual and good, involve God's action in relation to creation. But sometimes the miracles we want to expect and hope for don't occur, not because God isn't trying hard enough, but because the conditions of creation aren't conducive or the uh, cooperation is not present. 
Yeah, it, again, that's um, something I definitely want to come back to is because I have that actually underlined um, that this quote without yeah. without cooperation, miracles cannot occur. Uh, I wondered if you could go into that a, a, a little more. Yeah, um, as I mentioned earlier, my basic assumption is that God is a God who doesn't control and acts in relation to creation. And um, I have been deeply concerned since probably, boy, my early 20s with something I like to call the problem of selective miracles. And this was the idea that so few miracles occur that I wanted. I, you know, I go to my go to the altar at my home church and pray for people and anoint them with oil, or I would be prayed for myself. And it seemed like the only thing that really got cured on any sort of regular basis were like headaches and colds. <laughs> you know, none of the big stuff seemed to get, get the, uh, God didn't seem to care so much about the big stuff. And, and so I grew skeptical after a while that there's anything like a miracle, but I couldn't dismiss these occasional things. And I began to also get really nervous about people who distinguish between God acting in miracles and God acting through, you know, medicine, physicians, um, um, various sort of standard approaches to healthcare. And I realized that I could overcome this obstacle if I thought that God acts in both standard healthcare or even non-standard healthcare. But um, in these miracles, what was happening is that there was something going on in which creatures or cells or organs were in the right kind of place to cooperate. Or again, this little phrase I've used several times, the condition, the inanimate objects of creation are aligned or conducive. So I don't like, for instance, I don't believe that water has free will and cooperates or something like that. So I'm accounting for the inanimate uh, structures of existence as well. Yeah. So, so as, as the chapter goes on, uh, you mentioned this philosophical term that I would love for you to, uh, to, to lay out for us called, uh, I, I, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this correctly, panpsychism. Uh, for those, yeah, that's it. Yeah. For those who want to dig deeper into the idea of miracles, you say an uncontrolling love, uh, and, and you refer to your, your version as dual aspect monism. So ex- explain those, those kind of, uh, heavy terms there. Cause I'm sure a lot of people are trying to spell it right now as we speak. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So listeners get your nerd hats on for a moment here. Um, <laughs> there's been a, a long, long discussion in the history of philosophy about what the world is made of. And there are some philosophers, we'll call them idealists, who believe that the world is made of minds and ideas, and the fundamental structures of reality are mental. God is the supermind, humans have minds, maybe some other creatures have minds, but everything else is best understood as ideas. That, I, that particular philosophy was really popular 100 to 200 years ago, um, a lot of your major Christian philosophers were idealists. Since the scientific revolution, especially in the 20th century, the sort of establishment of science, um, a lot of folks have really rejected that mind and ideas or mind uh, idealism possibility, and they affirm what's called materialism. 
or, uh, you know, sort of the, the concrete world. And the problem with that particular view is that it's hard to account for the thoughts we have in our minds. If everything is purely mental, then it's, it's hard to understand how we can be thinking people, how consciousness can emerge, etc. So you got these two possibilities. Either everything's minds and ideas, or everything is materiality without any mental capacities. A strong portion of the Christian tradition has tried to say we can combine them by being what they call dualists. That is, we can say humans and maybe some other creatures have minds, but their bodies are entirely constructed by material. And the problem has been how in the world can a mind and materiality influence one another? It seems pretty obvious that if we have minds, and I'm right now trying to put sentences together in response to you, that my lips and my vocal cords are reacting. And if they're purely material, how in the world is a purely mental mind influencing this purely material reality and vice versa? So the fourth alternative (laughs) and the one that uh, I propose in this book sometimes goes under the label panpsychism, sometimes under the label panexperientialism. I use the phrase dual aspect monism or material or mental material monism. And what this suggests is that maybe all of reality from the smallest to the most complex is comprised of entities, of of aspects that have both mental and physical. That means that a quark, a worm, all the agents or all the uh, aspects that make up a worm, uh, a chimpanzee, me, even God, we have a mental aspect and the physical aspect. And those mental mentality can vary widely. You know, I don't think worms have the mental capacities that humans do and quarks don't have the mental capacities that worms do. And we don't have the mental capacity God has, but God, if God also has a physical aspect, it's not quite the same as ours. At least we can't see God or sniff God or et cetera. So it's kind of a philosophical proposal that not only helps us make sense of how our minds and bodies relate, but also can be really valuable in trying to work through the questions of miracles and, and why our bodies sometimes respond and don't and why other aspects of creation uh, aren't uh, purely uh, material. Oh, that's fascinating. So, so for our, our philosophy friends out there, uh, I'm sure they <laughs> very much appreciated that and they're feverishly researching right now. So if, if already not aware yeah. of it, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, so chapter three, I think, is is probably one of the most in, important chapters in the book because it really gets to the heart of probably the biggest question, uh, which is that if, if God is uncontrolling, uh, a lot of uh, opponents of this of this uh, idea might say, "Well, then, what exactly does God do? If He can't single handedly stop evil, then then does He do anything, or is He just kind of sitting around just watching His creation kind of play out?" Yeah, and I think this is, in in sort of scholarly circles, this is usually called the question of divine action. And and I don't think it's very hard for lots of people to kind of get on board and understand the difficulty this particular question uh, is involved. Because um, the vast majority of people who believe in God, Jews, Muslims, Christians, even Hindus and others, 
believe that God is present to all of creation, omnipresent. And yet, God doesn't have a localized physical body like you and I do. Or, you know, we can't look out our back window and see God playing golf or something like that. So you've got the idea that God is this universal spirit that can't be perceived by our five senses. But how in the world are you going to talk about divine action if that's truly who God is? Now, there's some parts of the Christian tradition, for instance, the LDS community, who believe God has a particular body somewhere in heaven. But even there, there's all kinds of questions about how God can influence all of reality and be one you know, embodied being uh, in the, uh, somewhere in the heavens. So there's, even if you're a Mormon, this is still a, an important question to ask. So in this chapter, I begin to slip into um, a lot of philosophical categories, going all the way back to Aristotle, and make this kind of basic claim. God acts in relation to everyone and everything, moment by moment, as a universal spirit. And this action is necessary, but not sufficient. And that's a philosophical way of saying God is a cause among other cause, but never the only cause to bring about some event. Interesting. Maybe I should stop there and, and get your thoughts, because I don't want to get too, too uh, philosophical here. Yeah, yeah. Well, you do get into uh, what you refer to as um, you address the idea in, in this chapter that God is nothing like us, and and you refer to it as uh, absolute apophatic theology, uh, and, and yeah. you argue against this mode of thinking. And I, I just want to hear what what you have to say on that on that subject. Yeah, that's a that's a really important one. Um, I think a lot of people, especially if you've grown up like me in a fairly traditional church, it's been really easy to believe that God is understandable, and uh, you pretty much got God figured out. Oftentimes, as a kid, I thought God was just like a bigger version of me. Um, And as I got older, I started replacing some of those ideas and realizing they had problems. And the questions of mystery begin to come into play. And of course, unless you're really got a lot of pride and think you're super cocky, you're going to say there's going to be at least some mystery when it comes to God. But what I call absolute apophatic theology is the idea that God is entirely different from us, in no way similar. And when I say no ways, I mean, we can't even say God's action is anything like any kind of action we know. This is one way some people, I think, try to protect the idea of God uh, so that uh, God doesn't become too small or too much like us. But I think it has all kinds of problems, because if absolute apophatic theology is correct, nothing we say, think, or do could even have one tiny bit of resemblance of who God is. And I think if that's the case, we might as well just, you know, take our balls and go home. Uh, there's not much else to do. The only thing you can really do is just go around telling everybody else who thinks they can know something about God that you've got it wrong. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I'm against absolute apophatic theology. So, so I'd love to go back to, uh, to, to the, the point you made about uh, God working through uh, the Spirit. 
or often called the the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, in, in churches all throughout. Uh, and so, spirit, the spirit, or the Holy Spirit, or whatever you want to call it, is something that is thrown around quite a lot. You know, you can walk into any church anywhere on a Sunday and probably hear reference to it. But uh, it's a it's a tricky thing to explain, though, to someone who maybe isn't uh, religious or, or, or Christian specifically. So, how would you explain spirit? Uh, to someone who's unfamiliar and, and again, like maybe you can go into a little bit of like, how does God work through this invisible force, so to speak? Yeah. I, some of the most common languages to try to describe God as an invisible, but universal spirit has been things like comparing God to the wind or to the law of gravity or to oxygen or to breath. These are things that don't, you know, aren't like embodied. Obviously, breath isn't universal. Oxygen isn't even universal. We can, we can think of instances in which the law of gravity doesn't apply. But these are, are ways to try to come up with some analogy to talk about influence that's widespread, and yet we can't see it with our eyes or even in some of these cases, but not all. We can't perceive it with our five senses. I like those kind of analogies. But the problem with thinking of God, that God is like, let's say, gravity, is that it's really hard to think of God as personal. You know, gravity isn't personal. Uh, or maybe here's, a, here's a, maybe even a better one, the force in Star Wars. You know, the force is there. It's present. It somehow influences. But I don't think people think of the force as having, you know, a, a personal relationship with, the, with everyone. Uh, not so. Um, to bring that side in, I like to talk about God as kind of like a universal mind. Uh, most people think that humans, at least, and maybe other animals, have minds somehow uh, located in our brains. And this gets into controversial stuff about, you know, what that exactly is. But let's just for the moment say that, um, that we have minds and our minds interact with our bodies. Now, these minds are personal. They seem to be influenced by our bodies and to influence. We make decisions. We can't do just anything we want, but there's some decision-making capacities there. And I think God has decision-making capacities. I think God is relational or personal. So kind of combining those two, it doesn't solve all the answers, but I think it can get us a long way toward thinking about how God, as a universal mind, is active at all times and places, and is a cause in every event that occurs. It doesn't mean that every event that occurs is what God wants to occur. We all know that sometimes we act in ways trying to get you know, certain ends, and we're thwarted by that by other people or environment or circumstances or whatever. But this proposal says that God is a universal agent, a universal mind present at the quantum level, at the social level, at every level of every universe that exists. of the book, I think, is uh, another one of my favorite chapters uh, where you discuss uh, what does it mean to say God loves everyone and everything? Because 
this is a, a conversation my dad and I have quite often uh, because my, my theory is that it really, that, that idea that God loves everyone and everything uh, seems to be a tough one, especially for a lot of my uh, North American Christians, because it kind of challenges the idea or the notion that a lot of people believe that there are uh, people in this world that are unworthy of love and uh, have done something horrific and therefore must suffer punishment, you know, uh, i.e. Hitler or Jeffrey Dahmer or, you know, people have done awful things uh, throughout this life. So, uh, so explain that. So you start off by first defining love. Uh, and, and so you, you define it as to love is to act in intentionally in relational response to God and others to pr- promote overall well-being. Uh, so expand on that if you could a little bit. Yeah, that definition is really important to me. And, and part of the misunderstandings are, I think, when it comes to the questions of love, come down to not having the same definition. Um, when people say that, you know, God doesn't love Hitler, um, if they mean by that God doesn't like what Hitler did, of course, I'm totally on board with that. Uh, but notice that in my definition, there's nothing about liking things. Um, the idea is that love is an intentional action in response to God and others to promote overall well-being. Love, as I see it, is primarily about trying to do the good, trying to be helpful, trying to be uh, help those in some ways, uh, to help others, I should say, in some way increase their well-being. So I think God wants Hitler to increase his well-being. I mean, maybe we should take someone who's alive today. Let's say Donald Trump. I'm not a real fan of Donald. I'm not a real Trump fan. So um, the the question would be, um, do I think God loves Donald Trump? You bet I do. I don't think God is pleased with many of the policies and the ways he's acted. That could be said of me as well in some cases. But um, So I don't think God likes some of the things Donald Trump says and does. But I think God really wants Donald Trump's well-being. And in fact, it may be that Trump's well-being would be better suited if he wasn't the president of the United States. So just because God wants something good of someone doesn't mean that they necessarily means that God wants them in the position they're in. So we can take that then and apply it down the line, uh, even to something as weird as like the coronavirus. Does God love the coronavirus? Well, I don't think God likes what's happening with the coronavirus, but even the smallest units of reality, I think God wants their well-being. Or maybe a better example would be cancer again. Um, cancer occurs because cells become cancerous. I think God wants those cells healed. So God loves cancer cells, not because they're cancerous, but because God wants them to be whole, healthy, uh, and uh, you know, their own well-being, whatever well-being a cell can have. Mm. Yeah, and I think it, when I was reading this, I think it, it fits quite well with this notion of, of God as father. Because when I think of a parent and how a parent loves a child, you know, I, my, my child may disappoint me and, and may do go on to do awful. I hope not. She's in the other room, so hopefully she didn't hear that. But, um, <laughs> but get, prepare yourself. She's going to someday disappoint you. She hasn't already. <laughs> so, m- smaller levels at this point, but yes. Uh, but, but, 
but I think that's a great, I think that's a great example though, because you know, like your, your child may disappoint you, but that doesn't in no way, shape or form alter the fact that you still love your child. You just are not supportive perhaps of what they're doing in that particular moment. So. Right. Right. So if love has this general view or this general definition of an intentional response that promotes overall well-being. We can then take that general definition, and I don't really do it much in this book, but I've been in other books, and look at various forms of love that fall under that definition. So sometimes love is, you know, turning the other cheek, not repaying evil with evil, but repaying evil with good. But other times, love is seeing something valuable and excellent and, and appreciating that and valuing that. So there the word like might be a little more appropriate, but I, since like has got some other connotations, I don't use that as much. So we can talk about all kinds of forms of love, some of which are going to see the value and excellence and beauty and worth in others and appreciate it and work to enhance it. But others are going to say, you know, sometimes people do things that are bad to me and I have to turn the other cheek. I have to repay evil with good. Yeah. And, and I, I think further on in this chapter, there's, there's a few points I want to get to in this chapter. Cause you, you bring up, uh, you address multiple things I think that are really important. Uh, one of the other ones is, and, and I think this is a, a thing that, uh, a lot of my friends who are atheists, uh, tend to point to, uh, and, and in large part, they're right. Uh, and, and you address this in this chapter, the idea that, um, there are parts of the Bible where God does not exactly come across as, as loving, uh, it's, particularly in the Old Testament where we see instances of a, a God who's jealous or filled with rage or smiting people. And uh, I definitely agree with your, your, uh, your, your premise on this, but I would love for you to talk about it um, here. So how do you respond to those who say, well, what about those parts? What about that God? Yeah, you know, I grew up people trying to explain away those things. And I did a little bit myself, actually, so I can't just point the finger at other people. I, you know, we, we saw the revelation of love in Jesus. We read, you know, John's letter that said, God is love. We read the psalmist who said, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. So it was really clear to us God was loving. And then we came across these passages in which God wants the Israelites, apparently, to take the babies from their enemies and bash their babies' heads against the rock. And a lot of people say, well, God is loving. So in some mysterious way, killing babies is loving. And I've just come to the point in my life where I just say, you know, I won't swear, but I just don't, I don't buy that. I just think that sometimes the biblical writers get God wrong. And because of that, I can then come to scripture and find and, and appreciate it. I have a particular uh, interpretive lens, or what we say is a hermeneutical lens. And that's a hermeneutical lens that's been shaped by Jesus. It's been shaped by what I think are the dominant themes in Scripture, which are a point to a God of love. And I'm to the place now in my life in which I can just very easily look at examples like God seemingly asking people to bash babies' heads and say, you know what? They just got it wrong. Sometimes we get it wrong today. Sometimes even the writers of Scripture got it wrong when they thought God wanted them to do something evil. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I, I think that's a good segue into one of my other favorite points that you make in this chapter. Uh, that is, uh, you make the point that as human beings, we choose to love, whereas God's love is different in the sense that God must love. Explain that a little bit. Yeah, this is a really common one. Uh, people want to be on board with the love thing, and they know that they have to choose whether to love. And then they say, well, love always involves freedom. So how is it that God always loves? Uh, can we say that God's nature is love? Can we say that God has to love, must love? Well, if God must love and love is free, that makes no sense. And so they kind of go round and round here. And my view is that God really must love. It's God's very nature to love, and God can't contradict God's own nature. So God doesn't have freedom not to love. However, God does have freedom in choosing how to love, moment by moment, because as I, in my view, the future is open, and God makes decisions moment by moment. God will always love, but the question that God faces moment by moment is, what would be the most loving thing to do? How can I predict what's going to happen here in relation to how people are acting in the world and all the various factors and actors, and etc.? So while God has a nature of love that means that God always loves by necessarily, you and I must choose to love every single moment because we don't have everlasting natures of love. Yeah, I, I've given an example uh, in regards to that 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 thought, um, and, and that is, you know, thinking in in terms of of God, uh, in the divine, whatever you, however you want to refer to God, uh, that that God has the ability to love unconditionally, and and the fact that uh, limitless love is just inconceivable on a, on a from a human standpoint, and. And I've very much said before, like, my love is very conditional. And I know that because if someone, God forbid, hurt my daughter, uh, you know, that would be that would be the end of my love for that, that that particular individual. But so so to say that God could love even that person where I would be uh, where I would fall short uh, is just seemingly in, in inconceivable from from my from the human perspective, I guess. Yeah, I like that. That word unconditional one has kind of been a tricky one for me. I, I try to stay away from it, and, and I'll tell you why. If unconditional means God necessarily loves because it's God's nature, then I'm totally on board. But there have been a lot of theologians in history who have said God loves unconditionally, and by that they've meant something like, there's nothing about you that God finds valuable, that God looks at you as a totally dirty, rotten center of no, you know, headed for hell in a handbasket, and yet God decides to love you anyway. Well, I'm not into that. I think uh, creatures have intrinsic value, and God appreciates that value. So if that's unconditional, I'm not on board there. If it's about God's nature, I'm on board. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and great segue, by the way, into my last, <laughs> the last part I wanted to bring up uh, on this particular chapter, which is uh, you bring up one of my favorite arguments by fellow Christians who argue, uh, I've heard this time and time again uh, in churches and in conversations, uh, fellow Christians who argue that God could potentially, if, if you did something awful, that God could potentially leave us, forsake us, or stop loving us based on something that we do here on earth. Yeah, I, I hear that too. It's a, it's, it's a very common uh, debate 
in churches I've been a part of that has a long, long history amongst theologians that comes down to a question of what comes first in God's nature. Is it God's sovereign choice or God's nature of love? If choice comes first, God really can choose to stop loving you if God wants to. In fact, God can choose to do a whole lot of rotten things if God decides to. But if love comes first, God can't choose to abandon you, can't forsake you, can't stop loving you, because it's God's very nature, and God can't contradict God's nature. And this I find, as I try to say, as you know from reading the book, a lot of people who say God could stop loving you really actually believe God can't because God never would and it'd be go against who God is and all that sort of stuff. So I try to lay that out in this chapter. Yeah, I love that. Uh, Cause when I have those conversations where I hear those things like, you know, like out, outside of the love of God, it makes me want to bang my head on my desk. So <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, how? No. Uh, anyway, <laughs> So, um, so moving into the next chapter, um, it, you talk about how does Jesus fit into a theology of uncontrolling love? And in, in my eyes, Jesus seems to fit very nicely with the idea of uncontrolling love. And so you talk about this idea of kenosis Christology and Jesus in relation to God. So talk about that a little bit. Well, at the outset of this interview, I said there were eight questions that there were the most commonly asked, except one, and this is the one. <laughs> yep. This is the one that I rarely get, but I really felt like I wanted to put it in there, because most people have this notion that Jesus is, a, you know, someone who loves. Uh, they might think that God occasionally gets pissed off and hurts somebody because he's mad, but Jesus is not going to do that. Um, and what I wanted to do in this chapter is to talk about so many biblical passages in which Jesus is not only painted as loving or portrayed as loving and acts in loving ways, but I also wanted to show that even Jesus can't do some things in the world. And the miracles were one of my best examples here, to say that Jesus didn't go around healing everyone all the time. And Jesus tried to heal people in his hometown of Nazareth, and the biblical text says that Jesus couldn't do that. And so I was kind of making the argument that maybe this is another way in which Jesus reveals something about who God is. Maybe just like Jesus can't control others, even though Jesus wants to heal them, God also can't control, even though God wants to heal. Oh, that's good. So uh, we're going to unfortunately get into the, the lightning round because, uh, and again, I, I want to tell the listeners, like, okay. <laughs> we're, we're touching, I'm trying to touch a little bit on, on, on each of these uh, central questions uh, found within the new book, but, uh, but obviously you need to go out and get the book. There's so much more con- content in there that uh, this, this surely will not do it justice, but uh, at least want to touch on, on each of them. So uh, the next chapter, you right, get... I'll try to make my answers short. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. We're down to the last couple. So, <laughs> um, so the next chapter you get into is if God created the universe, why can't God stop evil? And you start out with this, with this great, because I think this is, this is something that, that you hear a lot, especially for, for people who, uh, you know, are, are adamantly, uh, stringently atheist, uh, or perhaps were, uh, raised in a very strict fundamental, uh, way of, you know, being brought up within the church and, and have completely cast it aside and decided that there is no God. Um, but you, so you start out with this Facebook post that I've seen in countless forms a number of times. 
And essentially it just says, if God created men, women, all creatures in the universe in six days, then why is he so powerless to change the horrible things that happen on earth? I mean, he's God, like with a wave of a hand, he'd be able to end everything. Uh, Therefore, I have to conclude that God does not exist and never has. So you start out by responding with stating uh, four fundamental beliefs. I don't remember them off the top of my head. <laughs> okay. I can, I can give them to you. So you say that God created the universe. <laughs> Sorry. God created the universe and continues to create today. Uh, creatures and creaturely factors can co-create with God. God is perfectly good and always loving, and evils occur that make the world worse than it might have been, uh, might have otherwise been. So, yeah, good. Yeah. So I want to just tell the reader right off the bat, I'm a creationist. If a creationism is understood just with the idea that God creates. Now, I actually believe God creates through evolution, but if to be a creationist is to think there is a God who's a creator, then I'm one of those. But I also think that creatures co-create, and not just humans, but other creatures, even the smallest entities. And that implies that God doesn't create all alone. That's the major part of this particular chapter. But to go on with those four things, I think God is always good. God doesn't sometimes just, you know, get really angry and go evil, go rogue. And uh, finally, that there is real genuine evil in the world. One way some Christians will kind of squeeze out of this will say, well, it looks bad from our perspective, but in somehow from God's perspective, it's really good. And I want to say, no, there's really pointless pain sometimes that God doesn't want. And that's been going to set up which the rest of the chapter, which is probably, if the readers haven't had their minds blown yet, this chapter will do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. And, and you talk about that in, in the prior book as well. There's, and that's what I think one of my favorite parts of the, of the book is just this idea that, that God creates in conjuncture with his creation and uh, creation uh, is ongoing, uh, meaning it didn't just stop at the end of Genesis. It's, it's ongoing. That's right. Yep. Yeah, I love that. Oh, so, okay. So chapter seven, uh, you get into what hope do we have if God's love is uncontrolling? Or more specifically, you address the question, if God can't act, what hope do we have that love will ultimately triumph? How does love win if God can't, uh, can't act? Well, can't control. Or can't control. Sorry. I, I, I think God always, <laughs> I think God always acts. Um, so here, just real quickly, I lay out some alternative ways to think about the afterlife. I happen to believe in an afterlife. One of the ways is to say that some pe- God sends some people to hell for eternity and conscious torment, and other people get to go to heaven for eternity and bliss. I reject that idea that God sends anybody to hell forever. Another possibility is that God just says, all y'all in, come free, and everybody goes to heaven no matter what they've done, even if they don't want to go there. God just single-handedly says, everybody goes to the good place. The problem with that is that it means God is controlling, and I've already said that's not the good way to go. It brings up all kinds of problems. It means that people go to heaven who don't want to be there. It also means that any kind of choices or decisions we make right now don't really matter ultimately. Like, I'm trying to make all kinds of self-sacrificial changes in my life in light of climate change. Why the heck would I want to do that if I know that eternally I'm going to be in bliss no matter what I do? So universalism in the classic sense has got some real problems. The third option is to say, you know what? 
God just kills all the bad guys. This is called annihilationism or conditionalism. And this view, God either actively in punishment puts people through a fire and annihilates, kills them all, or passively just doesn't resurrect them. Now, this has the advantage of having no hell, but it has the disadvantage of saying God gives up on some people. And I don't believe in a God who gives up. I think God, yeah, I think the Apostle Paul was right in Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, and it says, love never gives up. Love always hopes. So in this chapter, I propose a new way to think about the afterlife that I call the relentless love view. That says God always offers opportunities to people in this life and the next. And we can always say yes or no. If we say no, there are natural negative consequences from saying no to love. God isn't a punishing God. If we say yes, we enjoy the benefits of a love relationship. It could be the case that God is able to convince absolutely everyone, and there is universal salvation, but there's not a guarantee in my view because people could always freely choose to reject God. Yeah, and that's the best I can do at make it big short. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's great. We de- we actually did a series. Uh, oh gosh, now it's been a, probably a few years uh, where we brought some some various authors on to talk about alternate you know views on specifically hell uh, in the afterlife. But um, w- one of the things that you brought up that I think is interesting because my my dad I think would also be on board with this. I, I think he's mentioned something to the. Uh, to the effect, uh, this idea that uh, your ability to to make the choice uh, to accept God's love uh, is not confined to this lifetime, but you can continue. Like there's an opportunity at, essentially after death, and I think you mentioned that. Uh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's a really important one. I was in uh, North Carolina speaking here recently, and I did a whole lecture on this view of the afterlife. And this woman came up to me and she said. You know, my son has suffered from depression since he was a kid. You know, she used the language of chemical imbalance in his brain. She said he never could believe in God because a loving God wouldn't allow this to happen to him. And he committed suicide last year. Hmm. Your idea of an afterlife in which he continues to have chances to say yes to a loving God gives me so much hope that this, my son, who had all these physical disadvantages and couldn't believe in God now, can have the opportunity to say yes to God beyond the death of a body that seemed to have some major chemical imbalances. So it's a hopeful view of the afterlife. Yeah, uh, I I wholeheartedly agree with that, by the way. Um, One of the things that uh, is very important to me and to this podcast is is, uh, uh, mental health and and just uh, a lot of the uh, misconceptions and just lack of understanding of, of how that even works. You know, it, you're talking about someone who's very, very sick, and and uh, there are things within the body that are, are are not functioning correctly. And so, yeah, I I I wholeheartedly agree with that that premise. So, excellent. Yeah, thank you for putting that in the book. So, <laughs> so. Um, so the last chapter you talk about, and, and you kind of tie it up nicely at the end, because the last chapter is all about, do you know God can't prevent evil single-handedly? And how do you prove, essentially, it's a question uh, tied to how do you prove your theory? Is, he, is it even possible? And so what is, what is kind of your response to that? Yeah, so my response is that I can't prove it. I can't know with absolute certainty this is the best way to think about God. I don't think such 
certainty is available for anyone, let alone me. Uh, but I do think this theory is most plausible. It has traction given the way we live our lives, given scripture, given all kinds of different factors and, and, and things. And so uh, we can take a position that goes between blind faith, which says, you know, you just have to believe it despite any evidence or any arguments or any experiences. And the other side would say, you have to be absolutely certain this is the right way. You deduce these, these uh, truths from Scripture or God or whatever. Um, you, can, you can steer what I think is a much more intelligible way, which brings together all the evidence you can muster, all the experiences you can muster, all the arguments, the Scriptures, everything together, and then tries to present an overall framework, an overall a worldview, an overall theology to make sense of the way life works and uh, the way the Bible seems to speak. Uh, well, I I completely appreciate uh, the, the work that you're doing right now. Uh, it's the first first time. I, I mean, I'm sure there's uh, other uh, theories and 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 proposals out there, but it's the the first time I've seen anything of its kind, and uh, it, it 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 at least uh, jumpstarts the conversation. Uh, that that's already ongoing, you know, and it, it brings to, to mind uh, when I was doing some uh, some study, some studies on um, uh, the origins, the early Christians, and that sort of thing, and uh, specifically the intertestamental period. And and this is a question that's been ongoing for thousands of years. You know, the 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 early Jews were were wrestling with if God is all good, then where does evil come from? And so. Um, so I really appreciate uh, the work that you've done. So I, I re- highly recommend folks uh, get out there and get the book, uh, Uncontrolling Love, God Can't, and then, of course, the new book, uh, The Forthcoming Questions and Answers for God Can't uh, by Thomas J. Ord. So go out and get it. Uh, thank you so much again for coming on. Um, I, I think this is a really fun uh, follow-up. So I uh, appreciate your time. I've really enjoyed the conversation, John. Thanks so much for making it possible. I always felt that it was wrong To lay my world in foreign hands So why'd it take so long To find the strength to steal it back All that I once said And so much more An open door So I can finally breathe again All this weight should lift from every inch It suffocates the way that I think If somehow all becomes far from this fortune destiny Oh, that I've come to believe as the only way To pass each day can find a feeling so empty
not so long ago I seemed to think that I had the whole thing figured out Only to find myself trapped at the heart of someone else Oh, but now I finally see the other side And just in time before I let it pull me in Again I see a way out And I can see the sun on the horizon But it's getting more and more distant Oh, every time we turn a face away But I'm more than willing to start again To start again, oh no New life must be born from the ashes But I'm more than willing to start again Take me. Lord only knows where it takes me. 